Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Melanie. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the passage she just read. It's in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. If you have your ESV scripture journal that we handed out at the beginning of the series, it's on page 14. You certainly don't need that to follow along. We are going to be taking some notes this morning, so have a pen or pencil handy if you've got that and if you'd like to engage that way. We've been in this series now since the fall. We took a little short break for our Advent season, but the theme of Colossians, as we've already been singing about, Jesus is at the center of all things. And I love the graphic that our artist Seth designed for us. You've got Christ there at the center, and then those circles all around represent the different sections or the different subheadings in our text as we've walked through it. We are this morning going to finish chapter two, so we're kind of right there at that halfway point. We're actually going to be at that seven o'clock position. It says, let no one disqualify you. And that's the, the theme of the text that Melanie just read for us. Now, what we've been learning in this study is that if Jesus is indeed the center of all things, literally the center of the universe, the, the macro level at the micro level, if he's at the center that holds it all together, which is Paul's theological point now for two chapters, then he must become the center of all of our things. Our families, our friendships, our careers, our dreams, our hope. It's exactly what Carl was praying for for us a few minutes ago. The center of our daily lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. And all the other religious accoutrements and rhythms and all those kinds of things, they kind of just fall to the wayside, what Paul is saying this morning, compared to putting Jesus Christ right where he belongs. Uh, the letter keeps taking us past shallow, lifeless faith and toward wholehearted life with Jesus at the center. And so this morning's text is one of those that at first you read and you think, what in the world is Paul talking about? And how is this going to apply to me? I mean, I asceticism, and what was all this stuff that I read? There's more in here for us than it seems. There's powerful application for us as a church and for each of us as individuals this morning. I want to start by marking up our text as we have come accustomed to do. What we want to find is every direct reference to Jesus as we walk through this book. There are, by my count, 63 direct references to Jesus Christ in just 95 verses in the letter to Colossians. That's pretty significant. And I don't mean just direct references to God in more general. I'm talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So there are three in our text this morning. Let's go ahead and put a box around those. If you have a pen or a pencil, you'll find the first in verse 17. 
whether you've got your scripture journal or a copy of the Bible in front of you, go ahead and put a box around the word Christ in verse 17. The next is in verse 19, the head. Now, ESV has done us a favor of capitalizing the H in head because it's clear from the context that he's referring to Jesus Christ. So there's another direct reference. And then the final is in verse 20. Christ is again mentioned there. So you can kind of see Paul keeps making the point. Make it about Jesus. He's the center. He's the head. Don't get distracted by all these other things. And that's Paul's point this morning. Now, the very first word of our text, you might have caught this already, but if you, ha- if you didn't um, look back at it, verse 16, the very first word is important. Therefore. And anytime you see that word when you're studying the Bible, it's helpful to go back to what we just read before. What was Paul's point? What is he, what's the momentum of his argument that he's, he's launching out of? I want to reread to you a text that, or part of the text Lloyd covered last week, verses 13 to 15. So just glance back up if you have your Bible in front of you, and we'll read that. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I thought Lloyd really nailed it last week. I was expecting a laugh from that. Thank you. I was like, someone was holding it in over here. Like he literally took a hammer and a nail on a cross last week. And, and, and what he did was he took this black cloth that represented the blackness of our heart. And he talked about circumcision was the removal of flesh. And the, the physical circumcision in the Old Testament pointed to the circumcision of the heart that the prophets foretold that came true in Jesus. And so Lloyd took that black heart and he nailed it to the cross. And then he took that, you know, that ticker tape, that long white tape. And he said, imagine that every one of your transgressions, every one of your sins just on this tape and he rolled it out across the stage and then he nailed it to the cross. That's the image. That's the picture of last week. What Paul is saying in verses 13 to 15, he's saying you've died in the best possible way. You've died in Christ. And so therefore you've been made alive in Christ. So when you get to verse 16 and you see the therefore, you know that what Paul has in mind is that image, that total and complete victory. And what Paul is saying here is that that victory that Jesus did on your behalf has direct implications for how you live. And that's his launching point for our text. So let's look at it again, verse 16. Therefore, in light of that great victory, in light of the fact that you died, you're now back alive again, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath, verse 17. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those two verses are the key to the whole passage. If you get those, you get the text this morning. And so I'm gonna spend most of our time there and then we'll cover the rest of the passage that Melanie read um, by way of application right near the end of the, of the message. To understand what Paul's saying in these two verses, you have to have a little bit of historical context. You have to have a little bit of cultural context. And I wanna go all the way back to the Old Testament because that's where the Jews, the Hebrew people got the law. That's where they got the regulations. Uh, God gave the Hebrew people the law in order to help them know what it means to live in a relationship with him. He called it a covenant. That's just a a word that means relationship. And he said, listen, here's what it will look like for you to live well in a covenant relationship with me. 
Now, over the centuries, the Hebrew people made a religion out of the law that God gave them, out of the relational um, uh, objective of the law, they made it into this external systems of do's and don'ts and, and, and laws and rhythms and festivals and all these things. Now, that wasn't all unconnected from God's law, but they layered all kinds of things on top of it, all types of rituals and regulations and little tiny little bitty things. And by the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, the religious leaders had added so many rules that Jesus himself was accused of breaking them on frequent occasions. Now think about that for just a minute. God in the flesh, the one that gave the law and said, here's how you are gonna operate in relationship to me and as a light to the Gentile nations. God himself shows up and starts living out the law as a human being and he's accused of breaking the law by the religious experts. Isn't that ironic? Just give you a couple examples of that. Jesus uh, was accused of breaking the Sabbath when he healed a man on the Sabbath. Jesus' disciples were accused of, of breaking Sabbath regulations when they were picking the little heads of grain for a snack as they walked through the fields. And, and Jesus' response in that instance was, was incredible, brilliant. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Same is true with the law. The law was given to man for the purpose of life for human beings, to exist in a covenant relationship with God and to operate toward human flourishing. Man was not made for the law. Man was not made to be burdened under all these religious rules and regulations. Now, fast forward to the start of the Christian movement. Every city where a church was planted, these men that Paul called Judaizers would come in and they'd say, listen, Jesus is all fine and good, but you're not made clean just through faith alone in Jesus. You've got to become Jewish. You know, yeah, except Jesus, that's all fine and good, but you've got to come under all this law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the Sabbath regulations. You've got to be careful what you eat. You've got to be careful what you drink, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Paul keeps hammering this throughout his letters. It's a problem, to the church, problem with the church in Galatia, a problem here in, in Colossians and Ephesians and, and the other churches as well. Last week, Lloyd talked about this in relationship to circumcision. And Paul's message about circumcision is you don't need to be physically circumcised anymore because your heart has been circumcised in Christ. And so that is the idea that Paul is getting after in verse 16 when he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Questions of food and drink. Those are the Jewish kosher laws. Regard to a festival or new moon. Those are the Jewish calendar feasts and holy days or Sabbath, which of course we've already talked about and all the crazy legalistic rules and regulations the Jews, the Jews had piled onto the day of rest. By the way, if you go to Israel even today and you're there on the Sabbath or Shabbat, you will find that many of the elevators stop at every single floor automatically. You know why? Because according to modern Jewish law about the Sabbath, it is work to push a button. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there on this elevator going up one floor at a time. And I'm thinking, this is keeping me from the rest that God would have for me back in my hotel room. Paul is saying, all these religious rules have no authority over you in Christ, so don't let anyone put you back underneath them. 
They have no authority. They're just like a shadow, he's going to say. Now, this is very interesting, this shadow metaphor in verse 17. And this is where I think Paul's brilliance really shows up. Now, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, but Paul was a brilliant thinker, and he's giving an analogy here that's carrying a lot of freight. He's saying in verse 17, these, these external laws and rules, these religious types things, are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's making a big contrast. On the one hand is the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, and everything that had been layered on it. On the other hand is just one, Jesus Christ. Let's mark up verse 17 so that we can see how this contrast works. We'll, we'll put this on the screen. The first thing that I want to encourage you to do, if you want to follow along with this, with your pen or pencil, is to write, put a triangle around the word but, because that's the word that marks the contrast. So why do we choose a, a triangle for that? Well, it's almost like a fulcrum. If you think about a seesaw, you know, a fulcrum in the middle. So you've got the contrast on either side of that word. So triangle around the word but. Next, draw circles around the two words that illustrate the contrast. You have shadow on the left side of the word but, and you have substance on the other side of the word. So you have shadow, draw a circle around that word, and substance, draw a circle around that word. There's the metaphor. Finally, draw an arrow from the word these, the beginning of verse 17, to the word shadow, and then draw another arrow from the word substance to the word Christ. Because what we're showing here is we're showing how the subject connects to the comparison. So we see that up on the screen. You can kind of take a look at it. And now you can see this contrast more clearly. He's saying these, all the rules and laws and, you know, all these things are just a shadow. But, contrast word, the substance is in Christ, is Jesus. Why does this metaphor uh, carry so much? Why is it so powerful? I want to interact with it a little bit and, and find out. We're going to take our time because if you get this metaphor, if you get what Paul's saying here, you get the whole passage. I've, I've got some props back here I want to utilize. Now, what I have here is a light shining on a sheet. Nothing fancy here, but I want to engage and we're going to do a little you know, fun with, with the shadows this morning. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to put an object Behind the screen, you'll only see the shadow. And I want you to shout out and see if you can guess what that object is. I'm going to start off really easy. What do you think this is? Okay, yeah, that's a very easy one. There's nothing that looks like scissors. There's no mistaking it, right? Okay. I'm going to uh, go to another one, also fairly easy. What's, what's this one? Okay. A little less clear when I kind of uh, mess with the scope a little bit. But what kind of shoe is this? I, I, I didn't hear it. Yeah, it's a sneaker, a tennis shoe, athletic shoe. You know that from the laces. But what brand of shoe is it? You don't know. Someone said Nike. What color is it? It's blue. It's black. Listen, um, a shadow will only tell you so much. Now, as it turns out, it's a blue Nike. But that was just lucky. That was total luck. Come on. Gee. All right, let's, let's try another one. This one's going to be a little harder, I hope. What's this? A driver's license? Uh, you, you guys don't have any idea. You, see, you can't tell from the shadow. How, how about if I do this? See if this makes it a little clearer. Oh, oh, and this. 
Yes. Now, for all you know, this could be Monopoly money. This could be Peruvian money. You don't know. I will tell you it happens to be American money, but you don't know. Is this, uh, is this $3? Is this uh, $300? $15. Three fives right here. Okay. Let's try two more. What's this one? Someone said Coke, soda. Anyone want to take another a, a beer? That would be... <laughs> Who do you guys think I am? Presbyterian. Yeah, Presbyterian. I'm, I'm a guy that... <laughs> I was going to say I'm a guy that doesn't want to get a lot of emails this week. So this is not a beer. Turns out this is a Coca-Cola Zero Sugar with cherry, which I actually really like. Now, the thing about a shadow is you could identify that it was a can, probably a can of soda, but you can't drink a shadow. Okay, however, substance, huh, I can taste it. Yeah. Last one. What do we have here? Picture Very good, a picture frame. Picture of what, though? You don't need to even guess. Okay, I'm afraid you're going to get it right. <laughs> Let me show you what this is. This is a photo of me and my three daughters from a hike that we took at Rock Island State Park. On the back of this frame, it says, Happy Father's Day, 2018. And uh, I've got Elisa, Ansley, and Karis each wrote a little message to me. Now, here's the point. The shadow cannot compare to the substance. This is what Paul keeps saying over and over again throughout this book. He's saying there's all these things that, that look like Christ, sound like Christ, have Christ about them somehow, all these religious rules and regulations and feasts and festivals and Sabbath days, but they're not the substance. They're a shadow. Shadows can be tricky. Shadows don't reveal everything you need to see. In fact, what I want to do is I want to put on the screen a little bit of a comparison list from that activity that we just did. What did we learn about shadows and substance? Go ahead and put that on the screen if we could roll that. If you want to draw this chart, you can do that on the space in the margin or on the next page if you've got the journal on the left, right shadow on the right substance. We're going to be interacting with this list as we walk through the rest of the text. On the one hand, the shadow is the absence of light. That's kind of what defines a shadow. It's a relative absence of light. But the substance, on the other hand, well, the substance actually reflects light. That's what, you know, how you can see it. That's what allows it to have color. On the one hand, shadow has no depth, but the substance has depth. In fact, it's three-dimensional, three-dimensional depth. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can, you can uh, work with it. On the one hand, shallow, uh, shadow is easily distorted. You saw how I could make it big and small based on how close it was to the light. On the other hand, the substance is sturdy and stable. It's not distorted. It's sturdy. It's stable. On the one hand, a shadow is intangible. I couldn't drink it, you know? You can't even touch it, a shadow. But a, the substance is tangible and solid. And then finally, a shadow is elusive and fleeting. You notice, as soon as I turned off that light, there's no more shadows back there anymore. The substance, however, is lasting and secure. I, I hope to have that picture frame, you know, in, uh, in my 80s and beyond. Here's Paul's point. The shadow cannot compare to the substance. It might hold the general shape, but it's inferior in every way. Just like that, 
Paul is saying through this analogy. The Old Testament law, the regulations, all of that was like a shadow. In and of itself, it's nothing apart from the substance. Now, the shadow serves a purpose in this context. The purpose of the shadow is to point out the shape of something beyond it. The purpose of the shadow is to point to the substance, which is Christ. But Paul is saying, now that Christ has come, the substance replaces the shadow. And, and I, I like Jesus' words even better. The substance fulfills the shadow. And by the way, in the ESV, they, they translate this little phrase, these are a shadow of things to come. When you first read that, you might think, oh, he's talking about still what is still to come in the future. No, that's not, not the best way to understand that. You might better translate it. These, talking about the law and the regulations, are a shadow of things that were to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, it gets even better. If, if, you, can, you know, if, if you can dial in here a little bit, I'm gonna talk just about one Greek word, but it really matters. So, so follow this with me. The word in English, substance, in this case, comes from the Greek word soma. You might spell it S-O-M-A. That means body. So this is my soma. This is my body. When you read this verse in the Greek, you realize Paul isn't talking just about any substance. He's not talking about just about any shadow. He's creating the image of a person approaching with the light behind them and so initially, all that you see is just the person's shadow. Can you picture this? But as the person arrives, the shadow gives way to the body. The person himself, you no longer see the shadow, you see his body. The body that belongs to Jesus. Just like the shadow, the law had a purpose. To anticipate the person, the body. To outline his shape, to point to his imminent arrival. But now that the body, the person has come, the substance is here. God, you see, has a body. He is tangible. He is solid. He is sturdy and stable. He is lasting and secure. He's all the things on the right side of that chart. He is the image of the invisible God. New Testament scholar David Garland paraphrases Paul's metaphor this way. Why play in the shadow world when you have experienced the real thing? That's Paul's point. If you get that, you get the whole text. Why play in the shadow world of, of, of religious stuff when you've experienced the real thing? Now, some of you may be holding attention right now. You're like, but isn't religious stuff good? You know, I remember talking to a guy that had just come to faith a few years ago, and he says, Rob, you keep talking ne negatively about religion. But prior to a couple months ago, I was completely irreligious, and now I feel like I'm religious and I'm loving life, you know? And so we talked about this, talked about the difference between religion and relationship with God, etc. But Paul's point is this. The shadow has a purpose. The purpose is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So are you gonna identify your Christian life, the, the life that God has for you, more with the shadow or more with the substance? Would you rather have the shadow of the soft drink or the soft drink itself? Would you rather have the shadow of the picture frame or the picture frame itself? This is Paul's point. So here's what I want to do. I want to give us a couple points of application in our context. 
And then I'm gonna keep finishing through the rest of the text with that application in mind because we're gonna start to see some lessons emerge in the text about shadow and substance. Uh, most of us, Jewish legalism is not our context. So I wanna give a couple contemporary applications that I, I think are very, very relevant. I see a parallel in Christianity today to what happened in Judaism in the hundreds of years prior to Christ. Remember how I said the law was given as a way to help people connect with God relationally in a covenant relationship, and then they layered on all the stuff. They made a religion out of it. I'm, I'm kind of using that term derogatively on purpose. I think the same thing has happened in Christianity in the 2,000 years since Jesus. In both cases, all right, people took what was intended to be a life-giving relational connection to God and made a religion out of it. In many ways, I'd say it this way, the religion of Christianity in the 21st century is not that different from the religion of Judaism in the first century. And this is the case I wanna make and I wanna draw some application from this. Uh, number one, some of you have come from very legalistic church backgrounds. And, and you know who you are. I mean, you grew up in a Christian church context that was really just all about, you know, what's clean and what's unclean and who is in and who is out, all based on external behavior. Jesus spoke exactly against that. And Jesus kept saying to the Pharisees, it's not the external stuff that makes you clean or unclean. It's what's the internal. And in most legalistic contexts that I've been in and been familiar with, there's very little attention given to the internal condition of the heart. Not in comparison to all the attention that's given to the, the rules and the rights and wrongs and, you know, because you're living right and you're on track with God and you're not living right, like, you know, you're, you're not good with God, etc. Do you see what that does? That simplification of all that Jesus said and all that the law foretold, it puts all the focus on the shadow instead of the substance. This is exactly what Paul was teaching against. And there's a direct application for those of you that grew up in religious, legalistic context. And some of you still have one foot in, one foot out. Now, religious legalism is still very relevant, but I also want to talk about a second application, which is really just a nuance of the first, that I believe might hit even closer to home for many in the room. There is another type of shadow religion that's everywhere in our context. And, and I'm, I'm gonna call it cultural Christianity and, and I wanna define it for you. But, but it's this idea that, that I can just kind of, you know, follow some of the Christian rules or do some of the Christian things without getting into it too deep. And I'm good to go. Let me define what I would call cultural Christianity, a shallow form of faith that claims the name of Jesus but has little to do with genuine devotion to Christ as king or a life given to imitating or following him. Claims the name of Jesus, little to do with genuine devotion. Um, from my perspective, this is the biggest religion of our day. And I want to be careful here not to say, hey, all those other Christians out there are cultural, shallow Christianity, and we at Fellowship are not. This is the water we swim in. This is in me. This is in Lloyd. This is in you. This, this is the, the Christian culture that we're in. I, I, I want to give you three thoughts around this as, as we're continuing to kind of think about this. Um, cultural Christianity is a religion that looks the part and knows the words, but has very little of the substance. And here's three examples. Cultural Christianity is more about the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. 
And we just pause. If I'm honest with you guys and honest with my own heart, that is true of me much of the time. More about kingdom of self than kingdom of God. Number two, it's more about adding Jesus as a life supplement than actually putting him at the center. That's why I think we need the book of Colossians. And and thirdly, it's really a half-hearted faith. It's come to define our modern subculture. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 15. He, He quoted Isaiah, and he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's one of the texts we had in mind when, when we reshaped and rewrote our mission statement, helping people find wholehearted life. We don't want to be, you know, our hearts far from God, even though we're honoring him with our lips. So the result of all this, this kind of like casual, like name-only Christianity that, that just can easily be a part of, of all of our lives, is the broader culture around us has been watching. They've been looking at this for years, for decades, and, and now they're, they're just saying it. They're just saying what they've been thinking for a while. And this is what they're saying. Why would I want to be a Christian? I know too many of his followers. I think if Paul were writing a letter to, to, to our churches, you know, in our day, in our time, you know, at least in our, in our context, Western 21st century, he might say something like this. Be careful you don't replace the substance of Jesus Christ with the shadow of a religion of convenience. Now, those words fall heavy on us. They should. They fall heavy on me. But I want to remind you that grace abounds. There is a sense that anytime God's word calls us to something that kind of falls heavy on us and we respond, Jesus is yes, yes. There is room for the legalists who turn to Christ. There is room for the casual cultural Christians who turn to Jesus Christ, grace abounds. So our mission at Fellowship, and I want you to hear this, helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus, it's not helping people supplement their lives with quality religious goods and services. That's not what we're about. That's not what we want to be about. So we lean in together, men and women. We lean into grace. We do it in community. We help one another. This is why this morning's text is for us. We must not trade the substance of Jesus Christ for a shadow of him. And I think we're always in grave danger of that in our cultural context. That's why we need this text. Having teased out that application, I want you to have that in mind as we walk through the rest of the verses. We've already gotten one lesson from verses 16 and 17, and that's the shadow of religion cannot compare to the substance. It's inferior in every way. The shadow cannot compare to the substance. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is going to be in the next two verses, verses 18 to 19. Let's take a look at those. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Lesson number two for us this morning. The shadow of man-made religion will pull you away from the real thing. That's Paul's point in these verses. The shadow 
of a religious approach, man-made religion, will pull you away from the real thing. In these verses, Paul's saying the problem with religious things is when they become disconnected from the head, which is Christ. And guys, that's always the problem. Reading your Bible, going to church, praying, fasting, these are all things we're about. A lot of the religious stuff, right, that we associate with that, when it is connected to the head, it serves life, the purpose of life. When it's disconnected from the head, it pulls you away from your life source, pulls you away from the real thing. So here's the analogy Paul is using. Just as the human body gets its life from the head through what it thinks, sees, breathes, hears, eats, and drinks, so the body of Christ gets its life from the head, from Christ. And so do you as part of the body of Christ. Jesus is the life source. Don't be pulled away, Paul is saying, from the life source, from the head, either by external legalistic rules or by half-hearted cultural Christianity. Don't be pulled away from Christ. The, the, The more that I've spent time in Colossians, the more I've become convinced that Jesus is Christianity, You know what I mean by that? Like following him, worshiping him, serving him, centering our lives on him. That's what's what's at the core. All this other stuff serves the purpose of helping us as a community do that. So that's lesson number two. The shadow of man-made religion will pull you away from the real thing, the life source. Finally, lesson number three. We'll see this in verses 20 to 23. Let's take a look. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Oh, that just got very interesting. Let me explain. Lesson number three, the third lesson about, about this. The shadow of man-made religion has no power to help you with real problems in life. The shadow of man-made religion has no power to help you with the real problems of your life. It's, it's actually impotent. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying this. Look, if you're looking for life, if you're looking for progress, if you're looking to become more righteous in your relationship with God through Christ. Why do you keep going to dead things to find life? You died to the elemental spirits of the world. In other words, they have no power over you. You'll find no life in them. And then he connects the elemental spirits of the world to the do's and don'ts of a religious system. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Why do you think you're gonna find life in that stuff apart from the head? apart from Christ. And he goes on. I mean, it's just just such good logic. He says, even though these things might seem pious and laudable and have the appearance of wisdom, as he says in verse 23, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they, they actually cannot do what you think they will help you with. Why do you go to all those rules and your self-discipline and all these things? Because you think that those things are gonna help you live a better, more righteous, less destructive life. 
They don't. They don't. There's only one who can. Let me tease this out a little bit because this is a very powerful concept. I think the problem with our attempts to self-manage our sin, what I mean by that is simply you know, managing our behavior instead of leaning into Jesus. The problem with our attempts to self-manage our sin is that what often gets produced in us is more sin. Let me explain. When you go down a path of saying, I can make myself look more like Jesus by disciplining myself and, and stopping these habits and starting these rhythms, and, and, I, and I'm gonna you know, will myself through my pulling up myself by my bootstraps, what you're essentially gonna do in yourself is produce two things. You're gonna produce in yourself pride when you're doing well, and then you're gonna produce shame when you inevitably fall off the wagon. Neither of those lead to life. Now, for most of us, it's a vicious cycle. Pride when we keep the rules, shame when we break them. Then we try harder. Pride when we keep the rules, shame when we break them. Fall down again, get back up, try harder. Guys, this is the story of most of my Christian life. What's the alternative? Well, I'm not gonna teach next week's sermon today, but I will say this. What's the alternative? Turning away from the shadow of self-made religion. It has to start there. Paul calls it self-made religion in verse 23. Turning away from that shadow and turning toward the substance. Jesus, if you get anything from today, get that. Turn away from the shadow of self-made religion and your own efforts to kind of, you know, heal yourself, solve your problems. Turn toward the substance. Jesus, what does that mean? It means worshiping him, focusing on him, talking to him, relating to him, communing with him, abiding with him, depending on him, trusting him, centering your life on him. This is how we will find life in Jesus. The shadow of man-made religion cannot compare to the substance. The shadow of man-made religion will pull you away from the real thing. The shadow of man-made religion has no power to help you with the real problems of your life. Things that are destroying you, affecting your relationships, sapping your strength and energy. Now, let's worship Jesus. Now, we turn in our worship service from hearing from God, speak through his word, to responding to what God has proclaimed to us this morning. And because we can't do any of this alone, we do it in community with one another. So we're gonna take some time in the rest of our worship service to proclaim together with our voices, Jesus Christ, the center of all things. He is the substance in a world full of shadows. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Our Father, I pray by the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ that you would deal with the wrestling in our hearts. I pray that you would remind us that Jesus came to die for every sin, including the sin of, of layering on legalistic rules to our faith, and, and including the sin of claiming your name but not taking you seriously in our lives. 
We come before you with hands open, knowing that what we'll receive is grace and mercy and love because of what is true of Jesus Christ and what is true of his great act for us, the great victory he won for us. So this morning we can sing, old things have passed away. There's something new that we are drawn to, the substance, Jesus Christ. And so I pray for us as a body, as we worship him, would you use even these next few moments to be at work in our heart by your spirit. In the name of Christ, amen.